In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That anthem by Philip Moore was written for the anniversary of a prep school from which choristers for Guildford Cathedral are drawn. The scriptural text presumably suggesting that divine wisdom is or should be the source and purpose of the education the children receive in that school. But I find it deeply moving to hear it on this occasion in the context of a service commemorating the accession of the Queen. So bravo to those who chose the music, Mr. B, I suspect. Rather like the anthem itself, with its boisterous celebratory character morphing into a whole other register of inwardness at the end, the observance of a session day has a double character. It is the day Princess Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth II, the jubilees of her reign and the elaborate and boisterous celebrations associated with them are dated from February the 6th, 1952, not from the day well over a year later of her coronation. But it is also the day that King George VI died, only 56 years of age. And so we can understand why it is, we are told, she typically spends this day quietly and privately. One perhaps can easily imagine her praying in the words of the anthem at the end there from Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding. The passage of nearly 70 decades and the changing fortunes of nation, commonwealth, and family right up to this very present moment have not given her any reason to lessen the fervor with which we might imagine her praying those words, give me understanding. The observance of a session day then reminds us that one of the characteristics of hereditary monarchy at least when it is functioning reasonably well, is this sense of personal continuity over time, even in the face of change, sometimes abrupt change, unexpected, and even unpleasant change. The king is dead. Long live the queen. And because a session day carries this weight of mixed feelings, happy and sad, arising out of the life of one human family among many, however exalted, it also reminds us that hereditary monarchy as a form of government defines our society in a particularly dramatic and moving way as a kind of family. It puts a human face on the complexities of our common life together. Families are bound together in the deepest sense not so much by common bloodlines or identical points of view as by loyalty, service, and affection among the persons who make up the family even when they disagree. Families disintegrate when they betray one another and fail to live up to the best in their common inheritance. So do societies. The monarchy we have inherited has evolved into a form of government in which our loyalty is focused not on some abstract ideology or inert symbol, but on a person, 
a person from a particular family and background who represents us all in all our particularities. In the 20th century, and now in the 21st century, we have seen the appalling inhumanity of political systems which force their populations into blind loyalty to abstract ideologies or leaders who themselves combine ideology and unfettered power in their own person. It is hardly an unprecedented situation in human history, and it now appears that we have new reasons to be concerned, some of them very close to home. In 1939, at the very beginning of the war, John Middleton Murray, a paradoxical literary figure of the mid-20th century, reflected on the totalitarian governments against which Britain and the Commonwealth were about to fight. And he warned of totalitarian tendencies arising in democracies themselves in wartime, where there was more or less common agreement to give almost unfettered power to one man for the duration of the emergency. He suggested that democracy as it evolved under constitutional monarchy was not meant to be simply a kind of mechanical system in which the majority is simply compulsive upon the minority, in which the majority gets to tell the minority what to do, but it is a way of life arising from an essentially religious conviction that the minority does not merely have the right of freedom of expression, but that it is a necessary and active part of the democratic whole. The minority plays a role. It is not merely tolerated. Her Majesty's loyal opposition is a deeply resonant phrase, even though we do not hear it very often nowadays, suggesting that disagreement and opposition are not just to be tolerated but are essential to the health of any national family as to any family. And Murray quotes William Blake's words, without contraries, there is no progression. In the most extreme forms of totalitarianism, Murray writes, every loyalty, whether to God or friend or family, which conflicts with the demand of the omnipotent and ubiquitous state is a treason. The right of the contrary, the opposition to existence, cannot be admitted. It has to be exterminated. But even in our democratic system, he writes, Her Majesty's loyal opposition finds little scope for action. How desperately that warning is needed in this strange moment in which we now live. The symbolic head of our society is a person who has not won office by popular vote, but she has also not done so by seductive eloquence or coercion or bribery or violence. Her headship is based not on passing fads or immediate crises, but on a long service of traditional service and duty, which has evolved alongside but separate from the fray of everyday politics. When he was Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams suggested that acknowledging the headship of such a person in our society 
the sovereign, or in her absence, her viceregal representative, puts a human face on our systems and our processes, provides a human symbol helping to hold us together, and can become one of the chief ways in which we resist the inhumanities that still threaten us. As we heard in the second lesson this afternoon, the Christian tradition acknowledges a mysterious role for governments and rulers in carrying out, uh, the, the carrying out of God's plans of salvation, even when they are outwardly inimical to Christian values. For this reason alone, it would be reasonable to hold an accession service or something like it. But we in the Church have another reason for doing so, as Bishop Rowan has said. For in the monarch we see a person visibly standing before God and God's judgment in humility and in hope, a sign of the humanity at the heart of power, a sign that we can be held together not by the furious rivalries of theory or ethnic exclusion, but by acknowledging the common debt of our humanity to its maker and its redeemer. For Christians, the anointing of the bareheaded sovereign in the coronation is an astonishing moment in which we see clearly that our only true king, demanding our own only ultimate loyalty, is Christ. But surely for all people of goodwill, those of other faiths, those of no faith, that sign has the potential to convey an insight crucial to the health of our civic society together. Those who exercise power really or symbolically are accountable. And not only to the electorate or to some elite or to some ideology, but to something that transcends all politics and all prejudices. It remains to be seen whether this vision can be sustained under the pressure, on the one hand, of increasing absolutism and division, and on the other, of relentless secularism, which says that to be all things to all people, a symbol of unity must be stripped of any particularity at all that might be construed to exclude anybody. On Accession Day, we gather because a man died and his daughter became head of the family. We do not know what words she uses when she prays, but let us now pray that she may continue a faithful and steadfast servant and that both she and those who govern under her may continue in growth, in wisdom, and in understanding. <laughs>